Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Our guest in this month's podcast is Jonathan Harris, Professor of the History of Byzantium at Royal Holloway University of London. He's written an article for us called Best of Enemies, which examines the relationship between the Byzantine Empire and the Islamic Abbasid Caliphate from about the 8th century to the 11th. This is an early episode in the tension, which of course exists to this day, between the nominally Christian West and the Islamic East. And one of the points you make... And one of the most interesting things about this article, which is called Best of Enemies, is that no matter how much conflict there is, and there certainly was a great deal of conflict between the Byzantine Empire and the Abbasid Caliphate, there are always spaces of cultural exchange that are there to be exploited. Yes, I suppose where I was coming from in this article is when you read history... um, because it's the most dramatic and, and violent episodes that get reported, um, it's very easy to get the idea that everyone in the past was um, in a state of perpetual war. Um, whereas, of course, it's the opposite. Um, the default option is actually uh, no war. Peace is what normally happens. Uh, most people spend their lives um, just earning their living, bringing up their family, um, and not being involved in, in, in battles and, uh, and, and the rest of it. Um, and I think this is really um, the key to Byzantium's relationship with Islam. Um, they're trading with each other, they're talking to each other, they have ways of uh, mitigating um, the war that they're fighting. Uh, at the end of the day, they have a, a special uh, process in place to exchange the prisoners who uh, being captured by either side, a gentlemanly agreement where they meet on either side of a bridge and, uh, and send uh, the prisoners across, uh, life has to go on. And can you paint us a picture of the relationship between the Byzantine Empire and the Abbasid Caliphate around about the beginning of this article, around about um, 750 AD? Well, well, at that point, the frontier between them um, runs fairly close to where the frontier these days is between Turkey and Syria. Um, There's a geographical boundary there, the Tower of Mountains, which helps to keep the two sides apart. Um, But of course, both sides um, are given to raiding across that frontier into the territory of the other lot. Uh, So around around the time of the founding of the Abbasid Caliphate, 750, it's usually uh, the Arabs who are doing the raiding. They're coming across virtually every year over the Taurus Mountains, over the passes, going into Byzantine territory, um, attacking Byzantine towns, 
uh, sacking them, grabbing whatever they can get. Um, as time goes by, the Abbasid Caliphate weakens, and the Byzantines see their chance. Uh, they nip across the mountains and start attacking uh, Arab towns with exactly the same uh, end in view. But the similarity, of course, is that both sides justify these raids in religious terms. So as far as the Abbasid, uh, Abbasid side is concerned, it's a, uh, a jihad against the infidel. And as far as um, the Byzantines are concerned, I mean, they wouldn't have called it a crusade, but they uh, feel that they are doing God's work, they're spreading the religion of Christ by going in um, and attacking Arab towns. And this really goes on um, for centuries, backwards and forwards across this, this border. And one of the most extraordinary things that you detail in the article is the way in which they misunderstand one another's religion, because they're both are deeply religious societies, and here we have very much the Arab world in the ascendant at the beginning of this, and yet they are ignorant in what we might say is a fairly entertaining way at times. Well, it is quite shocking in a way just how ignorant they are. Um, taking the Byzantine view of Islam, um, Islam is hardly new, um, by, say, the 10th century, when there's quite a, a bit of Byzantine writing about Islam, it's been around for centuries, but some of its basic tenets seem to be completely lost on the Byzantines. Uh, there's even an emperor, Constantine the Seventh, who reigns between 945 and 959. Um, he writes that uh, Muslims worship the planet Venus. Um, he seems to have got... Um, sort of his wires crossed somewhere. He thinks that the, uh, there are two gods. One is called God Allah and one, uh, one is called Venus. And he thinks Kubar um, is the um, Arabic word for Venus. So um, he says they talk about Allah Kubar. He's clearly heard the, the Arabic expression Allahu Akbar and misunderstood it. Or whether he's doing it willfully, um, which is another possibility. But clearly, I mean, this is a, a, a grotesque distortion of what Muslims actually believe. And we have a similar um, example from the Muslim side, uh, when they consider the Trinity. Yes, Muslims, uh, Muslim polemicists very often interpreted the doctrine of the Holy Trinity as being some kind of polytheism. Um, that's a, perhaps a slightly more understandable mistake, but again, it's hardly a new doctrine in, in the 10th century. It had been around for a long time, and Christians have always been at pains to point out that this is uh, three gods in one. Um, God in three persons, the Holy Trinity. Um, but nevertheless, there's still plenty of Muslims around who describe the Christians, the Byzantines, as polytheists. Now, we talk about, um, you've already mentioned uh, prisoner exchange, which is where the meeting of the two cultures come. Can you tell us something about that? Yes, I mean, this is something that takes place really at, at very regular intervals. Uh, it becomes a sort of standard practice. Um, so at certain times of the year... Um, it would be arranged that both sides would meet on either side of the River Lamis, um, which is one of the um, geographical borders between the Caliphate and the Byzantine Empire. Um, and the idea of this, of course, is that the river will keep the two sides apart. There's always a, a fear of treachery. Uh, and at, the, at this point in the river, there is a bridge, specially put aside for this purpose. And on the appointed day, uh, the two sides would be drawn up, and um, the arrangement was that the, the prisoners would be sent across one at a time. Both sides would send across one prisoner simultaneously, and they would cross in the middle of the bridge. And this, again, was 
designed to prevent any funny business um, because then it was all very transparent and both sides could see that like was being exchanged for like. Uh, you don't want to exchange a young man of military age uh, and then get back uh, an elderly man too old to, to, to fight. You obviously want to exchange young man for young man, old man for old man, young woman for young woman. And you uh, make so a parallel. Everything is, is arranged to ensure um, that uh, both sides stick the agreement. And of course, this is a, this is an ages old old concept. And you draw parallels, indeed, in the article with Cold War exchanges. Oh yeah, they were still doing it in the Cold War. Yes, they had the Glienicke Bridge uh, near Berlin, and uh, when they exchanged uh, spies, uh, it was done in exactly the same way. In fact, I think at the end of uh, a Smiley's People, isn't there? There's a, um, both the book, the John Le Carre book, and the uh, the TV series. Um, that's when Carla come, comes across on the bridge, in, uh, and they're all waiting for him on the other side. And what, of course, is absolutely essential to both um, empires, as, as is essential to, to indeed human life, is trade. And this, can you tell us something about these really quite vast social networks, uh, these, these trading networks that are there between the, between the two empires? Well, yes, trade in the Middle Ages is global. Um, this is not something that actually happened recently, as, as many people seem to suggest. Um, trading networks and roads stretch across the world, really from China uh, right across to Northern Europe, although the goods tend to head eastwards. Um, the goods heading eastwards from China and from the Abbasid Caliphate are the products of the East, i.e. silk uh, and spices and perhaps porcelain as well. These are coming across overland. Um, they're getting to um, large towns like Baghdad, the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate, and they're moving on there from there to Alexandria um, and then on to Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire. And as so often in, in human history, it is trade that, that, that is really the engineer of peace. Well, it is at the end of the day, because um, although war can be a money-making enterprise, there's no doubt that when uh, the Arabs raided into Byzantine territory and the Byzantines vice versa attacked into Abbasid land, part of the motive for doing that, whatever they said about religion, is in fact to store, extort money and, and, and goods from the towns you capture. However, um, in many ways, trade is a much easier way of doing it and much less risky. Uh, so um, if, you, if, it's, uh, if you want to get rich, trade is a far better option than war. And one of the things that's most fascinating, I think, about the article is that in their cultural uh, life, both the Arabic world and that of Byzantium is deeply attracted, for different reasons in, in part, uh, to the Hellenic world, ancient Greece is is absolutely crucial, and they both share an interest in that and a fascination with ancient Greece. Well, yes, I suppose it's not so surprising with the Byzantines, mm -hmm. as one should expect. Uh, their native language was Greek. Uh, they rule the areas where um, ancient Greek culture had developed, so Athens, uh, Sparta, these, these places are within the Byzantine Empire. Um, so, yes, and, and Byzantine intellectuals um, in Byzantine universities, ancient Greek le uh, literature is studied. Um, they're great readers of Plato and Aristotle, Thucydides, Herodotus, and they love, above all, Homer. Um, there are, you know, your average Byzantine intellectual can quote Homer uh, off by heart, virtually. Um, but the Arabs are also interested um, that when they um, take over a large of the Byzantine Empire in the 7th century. They capture Alexandria, they capture Antioch, Damascus, Beirut, and these are all centres 
of ancient Greek learning. Um, they capture libraries, uh, and they're intrigued by um, these works. They get them translated into Arabic. And their primary interest is not so much the literary works, so Homer is not so interesting uh, for the Arabs, but they're very, very interested in the medicine, uh, the science, and the mathematics. Uh, so they uh, love Dioscorides, um, they love Euclid, um, they like Aristotle, um, but the mathematics, above all, is, is something that greatly interests them. And uh, they, um, they actually expand on ancient Greek um, mathematics by pioneering these new numerals, um, which, of course, have become those that are in standard use throughout the world today. And, of course, they become guardians to a certain extent of Hellenic culture um, pre-Reformation as well. Well, in, indeed, um, although the Byzantines deserve a great, great deal of credit for preserving most of the wisdom of the ancient world that we have today, the Arabs also uh, deserve credit for that. And uh, when um, this learning is rediscovered um, in Western Europe during the Renaissance, um, there are really two sources that they're drawing on um, for text and knowledge. Uh, and one is Byzantium, uh, but the other is the world of Islam. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's a fascinating article, and it shows a very different um, perspective um, on the relationship between Islam and the West. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Right, thank you.